You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Church makes mistakes sometimes, but you knew that already. Different kinds of churches make different kinds of mistakes, and two of the more common mistakes that have happened in recent church history uh, have been, in some quarters, on the one hand, to emphasize building the kingdom over the message of the cross. On one end of the spectrum, you've got churches that focus on what's been called the social gospel, right? Uh, ministry with those in need, ministry to the poor, uh, different kinds of activities that are intended to work for different social movements. A lot of times, evangelism and the declaration of the gospel is never emphasized, doesn't even make an appearance. And friends, I've been in places, I've been in Methodist churches where that's clear, forefront and out, like, we don't do evangelism here, we do social kinds of things. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got churches that focus on evangelistic ministries, but never go beyond trying to save souls for heaven. They spend little time offering care to people who are in poverty or who are hungry. Both of those are mistakes. The church, when she's been at her best, has cared for people's needs and has declared without apology the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodists have been at our best, we've declared forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus and we have behaved in a way that commended those words by caring for the least of these. If we ever slide to one edge or the other, it's a mistake. Mark will not let us get away with moving to the extremes on one side or the other. Because Mark, throughout his gospel, has taken ministries that care for people Ministries of healing, ministries of mercy, and ministries that declare the gospel, evangelism and mission, and he's woven them together. For Mark, the kingdom and the cross go hand in hand. They can't be divided. And to focus on one or the other, to focus on caring for bodies and not souls, and to focus on souls and not bodies, is to miss half the gospel for Mark. That comes together in a crescendo in Mark 15, in the cross, where we see Jesus in his fullness, in his his doing the work that he has come to do. Mark takes the reality of the kingdom and the reality of forgiveness through the cross and weaves them together in chapter 15. 
He wants us to see that our efforts to transform the world will be ineffective apart from the gospel of the cross. To put it another way, for Mark, the work of the kingdom begins with the cross. All of the work that we do is grounded in what happened on Golgotha. And if we ever try to separate the one from the other, if we try to kind of separate the work that we do, let's do some nice work, but let's not talk about that bloody cross, then we've missed the point. And if we focus only on the cross and never try to do that kingdom-building work, we've missed The work of the kingdom begins with the cross. We see this in a clash of kingdoms. Chapter 15 begins with Jesus and Pilate, representatives of two different kingdoms, face to face. Now before Jesus comes to Pilate, he's had uh, a conflict with the Jewish leaders. He was praying in Gethsemane. Judas brought the cohort, the mob, with clubs and swords and Lanterns out to, to arrest him. They take him back to the council, and all of the power players are there, and they confront Jesus and ask him directly if he is the Messiah, right? Are you like the guy who thinks he's about to take over? Right? Remember in the first century, Jewish expectations of the Messiah were more like a military leader. Uh, people would come in and try to throw out. The, uh, the establishment and take over. And so the chief priest sees any kind of messianic movement as a major threat to his authority, his power. And Jesus responds to him by quoting a couple of Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 110, Daniel 7, and both of those declare that the Messiah is going to reign over all things. And that was enough to seal the deal for the high priest. Blasphemy. He thinks he's going to be enthroned in heaven. And they condemned him to death. The problem is, they don't have the authority to actually kill anyone. They need the Romans' help with that. And that presents another problem because Jesus portraying himself equal to the Jewish God is not the sort of thing that Roman governors get worried about. They could care less if he thinks he'll be enthroned in heaven after his death or something like that. That's the sort of thing Jewish leaders care about. The blasphemy charge is irrelevant to the Romans because they don't care about the Jewish God. They don't care about... Bl Pilate would be happy to blaspheme the Jewish God himself. So if the leaders bring Jesus to Pilate and say, hey, he's a blasphemer, Pilate's answer is, so what do I care? I am too, as far as you're concerned. So they need another charge, don't they? So what's the charge? We'll take a look at the text. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, handed him over to Pilate. Well, what charge do they give him? That comes out in the question that Pilate asks him. And the question that Pilate asks him in verse 2 is this. Are you the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate couldn't care less about blasphemers, but he cared a great deal about insurrectionists. He didn't care about blasphemy, but anyone who thought that they were a king in competition with his boss in Rome, Caesar, that's an issue. Pilate's primary job 
was to keep the rebel rousers at bay. That was his main gig in Judea. And if he did that successfully, he would be fine, and Rome would be happy. And if he didn't, they would pull him out and put someone else in. So the charge that they bring to the governor is insurrection. This guy thinks he's the king of the Jews. He thinks he's the Messiah. Remember 150 years ago, right? 160 years ago, Judas Maccabeus brought a posse of folks into the temple and gave Antiochus Epiphanes the end of a sword. That's the kind of thing, that's the way they're portraying Jesus to the Roman emperor as an insurrectionist who comes in and takes the foreign king out. Pilate has to pay attention to that, doesn't he? He has to. If he ignores it, he's not doing his job. The thing is, he knows the charges are trumped up. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. And Jesus responds, your word's not mine. <laughs> you can kind of see how he's, he's playing Pilate here a little bit. You say so. The chief priests are there and they're accusing him and they say so many things. And Pilate turns back to Jesus and simply says, have you no answer? Like what? Like, are you not going to get into it with them? See how many charges they bring against you. They are laying it at you one after another and you're just going to sit there quietly and we are told Jesus made no further reply. And Pilate was amazed at him. Here we have two very different ways two di very different values about what kingdoms look like. Pilate, he knows this is an illegitimate charge. He's not really worried about that. He just wants to appease the crowd, keep the peace, keep his job, and live in comfort. Jesus is falsely accused, and He actually is the King. And yet, He looks not to His own interests, but to the interests of others. With Pilate, you have thoroughgoing self-interest. With Jesus, you have thoroughgoing self-interest sacrifice. And we find out, to, we discover here two very different visions of what it means to be a king and what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of God. To Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't have to give him a straightforward answer. Mark doesn't give us a straightforward answer, does he? In chapter 14, we heard Jesus answer that question by quoting the Old Testament, quoting passages about how he, one like a son of man will be enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. He doesn't give Pilate a straight answer. He never satisfies his accusers Mark, however, does answer the question in a much deeper way and in a very ironic way. But before we get to that, that's as the narrative continues, before we get to that, we need to talk about Barabbas. Pilate is still kind of looking for a way to make everybody happy. So he goes to the leaders, 
time of the Passover festival. And he reminds them that he has a custom of showing mercy to one of his prisoners, one of their own at this time of year. And there's this guy in prison, and his name is Barabbas. And he's not just a common criminal, he actually is an insurrectionist. Right? Uh, we are told that a man called Barabbas, verse 7, was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So these guys like actually ran or attempted a coup. They, tried, they were running a revolution. They wanted to overthrow the government. There was apparently some sort of battle and conflict, and they ended up in prison, the ones of them that weren't killed in the conflict. And Barabbas was one of them. He actually was trying to overthrow Pilate and Rome in Judea. So you've got Jesus, who is being accused of being an insurrectionist. You've got Pilate, who, or not Pilate, but Barabbas, who actually is <laughs> the very thing they're accusing Jesus of falsely. So Pilate says, look, I got these two guys. I got Barabbas, I got Jesus. Um, we all know that Jesus is innocent. We all know that you are jealous of him. The crowds love him. He uh, has, has provoked you, and you're just trying to get rid of him. Pilate sees through the ruse which is one reason his transgression is so bad. He's not taken in by the Jewish leaders. So you've got Jesus on the one hand, who's innocent, you just want to get rid of him. You've got an actual insurrectionist, a murderer on the other hand. Which one do you want? The innocent or the guilty? And the crowds are stirred up by the leaders to ask for Barabbas, the insurrectionist. And Pilate unjustly frees the guilty and condemns the innocent. And this is one of the ways that Mark begins to portray for us the work of Jesus on the cross. An innocent man dies in the place of the guilty. And because we've been reading through the whole Gospel of Mark, and we've been letting the big themes sit with us and the connection points, we remember back in chapter 10 when Jesus said, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give His life in place of the many. And now we get as... Mark zooms in on one instance of that. Jesus gives His life in the place of this one. The innocent Son of God goes to the cross. The guilty goes free. There's an exchange. There's a substitution. And Mark invites us to put ourselves in the story, doesn't he? He invites us to think, you know, we're the many. <laughs> Barabbas is one. And Jesus offers Himself for us all. He puts up with the injustice, the false charges, the jealousy, looking not to His own interests, but all of ours.
Mark doesn't just tell us, hey, Jesus died in your place. He shows, it, he shows us what it actually looks like when Jesus dies in someone's place. We're invited to remember that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us come into the world broken, damaged, sinful, rebels. All of us come into the world with darkened hearts. And Jesus, in all of his purity, beauty, loveliness, holiness, offers himself in our place. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to experience it. And maybe it's worth thinking what it would have been like for Barabbas when he got home to his family that night and told a story. An innocent man died for me today. He hung on the cross that was built for me. And I wonder if Mark isn't inviting all of us as we read these words to think, the Son of God died for me that day. The cross designed for me was taken by Him. If we don't deal with all of the brutal reality of the cross, we never find our way to the kingdom. The work of the kingdom begins with the cross. And we see the work that Jesus is doing to reconcile people to God. People who are far away. People who are bound to death to give them life. And he does that by taking our place. Let the weight of this wash over you. Let the seriousness of this settle in your soul. The one who made all things, who brought them into power, brought them into being by the power of His will, the one who sustains all things, who upholds them with his constant love. Right? right now, the world, the universe, the cosmos is only spinning because Jesus loves it. Because he wills moment by moment to sustain it. And in this moment, that one sacrifices himself to sustain, to redeem us and everything. Mark wants us to understand that this is how Jesus becomes king. The forgiveness that comes through the cross is not a separate proposition from the kingship of Jesus. Back to that question that we raised a moment ago, that Pilate raised for us. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer. 
Your words are not mine. You say so. But Mark gives us an answer, and he gives us the answer not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times in 32 verses. In the passage we've read together, Jesus is declared King of the Jews five times. At the festival, Pilate asks, Do you want me to release the King of the Jews? When they ask for Barabbas again, what do you want me to do with the King of the Jews? Once he is taken to be crucified, he's mocked by the soldiers, verses 16 through 20. They put a purple cloak on him, the color of a king. They twist thorns into a crown and put them on his head, a parody crown from their perspective. They salute him and they say, quote, Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus doesn't have to answer the question. His enemies answer it for him. And that's only three of the times. Verse 25. Nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, the inscription of the charge against him read. This is the sign that hung above Jesus' head, right? When they crucify you, they'd write the charge on a board and stick it up above your head so everybody knew what you did. And the message was, if you do what this guy does, this is what we do to you. So don't do it. It was a serious determent kind of factor there. I think we said before, the Romans didn't avoid cruel and unusual punishment. They looked for the most cruel and the most unusual punishment as a method of determinant. As inhumane as it gets here. So here's this guy who thinks he's the king. If you make a claim that you're a king against the king in Rome, we kill you and torture you to death. And what is the charge against him? King. Crowds pass by him, priests, scribes, Sadducees, and they mockingly say, there's the king of the Jews. Can't he save himself? We never get a straight answer in the court scenes because Mark is intending to tell us through the lips of Jesus' enemies who he really is. Pilate declares that Jesus is the King of the Jews. The soldiers who crucify him declare he is the King of the Jews. The empire in its charge against him declares he is the King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders who put him before Pilate mockingly say, King of the Jews. And for Mark, it's ironic Because they say it mockingly, but it's true. And this is Mark's, like again, he could say, hey, Jesus is king, and the king offers you forgiveness of sins by dying in your place. And that, you know, kind of logical argument, propositions is one thing, and we can, yeah, that's true, All right, we get it. But how much more moving is it? How much more deeply does it connect? How much more emotionally 
engaging is it for us to hear the story and to let the the horror of it wash over us and to hear Jesus' enemies declare, He's the King of the Jews. 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 You're the Messiah. And I can't help but think of texts like Philippians 2 that say, at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Mark wants us to like this is his coronation. The cross is his coronation. Doesn't happen in a great church or a palace or Westminster Abbey or anything like that. It happens on Golgotha. This is the place where God becomes king. It's counterintuitive. It does, like this is not how power players get their power, is it? But this is how God does His power. And again, Mark wants us to see the kingdom building stuff and the forgiveness stuff are woven together. And if you try to separate them, then you rend the gospel and you miss it entirely. This is how the kingdom comes. And what happens next? Jesus collects His disciples and commissions them after His resurrection to go and teach the nations to obey everything He's commanded. To go and preach the gospel. To go and care for the least of these. Like This is His thing. The kingdom gets inaugurated and His subjects, His people, who He has reconciled, whom He has forgiven, who He has redeemed, are deployed to actually fill the earth with His beauty and His glory and His goodness. And if we focus solely on let's get some people forgiven so they can go to heaven when they die, and we forget that Jesus is all about transforming the world and filling it with image-bearing, God-loving, holy people, we have missed the entire point of His reconciling work. Jesus did not suffer unjustly to forgive your sins and leave you in them. suffered so that you could be free from the penalty, yes, but also from the power. Jesus died so that the life of His kingdom could be manifest and embodied in His people. That's why we spend so much time talking about spiritual formation. So I spend so much time talking about holiness and embodying the character of God. Like This is what it looks like. What does it look like to embody the character of God? It looks like a man on a cross. God shows up and instead of inflicting the just consequences of our sin, takes them on Himself. Self-giving, self-sacrificial, perfect love. The kingdom looks like Christians embodying that character consistently and increasingly.
Jesus didn't die just to forgive our sins. He did that. We don't want to miss it. But that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. He died so that he could reproduce his character, his life, his perfect love in all of us. That's the reason. That's what it means to inaugurate the kingdom. That's what it means for Jesus to go to his coronation. He's launching a new thing. The world has never been the same. Everything changed on that hill. Everything everywhere changed forever. Because his kingdom is an everlasting one. And his dominion has no end. And this church is an outpost of his kingdom. And the churches down the street are outposts of his kingdom. And the missionaries that we support and others are outposts of his kingdom. And that means we have a global network of kingdom outposts, doesn't it? And the more we offer ourselves to him and the more that he works through her, us, the influence of those outposts grow. And the plan on Jesus' side is to keep growing it in surprising and counterintuitive ways until it fills the earth. And the beauty of the glory of God covers the earth as the water covers the sea, to quote the prophets. Because the earth is filled with human beings who embody the character of the man on the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's why we say again and again, He will have nothing less than all of us. And if we kind of divvy up our lives and say, well, I'm going to give this part to Jesus, I'm going to give this part to you know, the church, I'm my family's got to have this much of me, and I got well. I got to go to work, and like if we kind of divide our lives up that way, and just sort out parts of ourselves to Jesus, and and, and then everything else, we we have failed to see what he wants. He wants all of us for himself, and when he has all of us, just as he gave his whole self for us, when he has all of us, everything is right. Like, if Jesus has my whole heart, it's going to be really good for my kids. If Jesus has my whole heart, it's going to be really good for my wife. If Jesus has my whole heart, it's going to be really good for everyone I, to whom I'm a pastor. Pray for me every day. Jesus, be sure you got that guy's whole heart today, okay? It's good for all of us. Jesus has our whole hearts. All the other pieces are in the right place. And if you want to know what it looks like for Him to have all our whole heart, go read Mark 15. Jesus has nothing held back from His mission to rescue His family. 
you don't go to a cross when you have reservations. Like You don't go to a cross if you're only 98% in. <laughs> you only do this if it's all in. 100%. If your whole heart is given to the mission that God has given you. Following Jesus means nothing less. It's very simple, friends. We, can, we, we make it more complicated than we have to sometimes. We make it more complicated with programming. How are we going to do ministry? Let's start a program. <laughs> we make it more complicated... with thinking that preaching is life coaching. We make it more complicated by thinking that we know better than Jesus. The only thing required is eyes on Christ. That's it. It's very simple. You look at Him, He rescues you, and He begins to reproduce what you see in your life. That's the sum and substance of the Christian faith. And He does it in the many. And when the many have Jesus transforming each of them, it transforms the world. All of it. And you'll begin to see what it looks like when the kingdom of God infiltrates the kingdoms of this earth. Because the earth just gets filled up with a lot of joyful, happy, singing, praying, preaching people who love Jesus more than anything. Imagine what the world would be like if it were actually filled with a bunch of people who love Jesus more than anything. I think I'd really enjoy that world. How about you? That's your calling. That's your purpose. That's why the cross launches the kingdom. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.